0: AJC Access Atlanta is
1: sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, built to beat cancer.
2: This is Access Atlanta. I'm here this week with Naja Parker, who is a content producer and writer here at the AJC. Uh, And she's brought us a story uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, What what
1: did you bring us this week? I'm so excited this week, Shane, because this week or this episode is all about theater in Atlanta. So I talked to an up-and-coming playwright here in Atlanta. He's not from here. He's actually from Memphis, Tennessee, but he has a lot of good roots in Atlanta. He graduated from Morehouse College, and he went on to Yale University to receive his MFA in playwriting. And he's really, really making some waves here in Atlanta. His name is Brion Holder. His first production was actually at the Alliance Theater about a year ago, ah. and it was called Too Heavy for Your Pocket, and that was his very first debut in Atlanta as a playwright. He's right. from Memphis, Tennessee, originally, but okay. he has a lot of roots here because he graduated from Morehouse College, right? And he also teaches at Emory University. Oh, okay.
2: So, so he's teaching. Does he teach? Uh, do you know? Does he teach playwriting? Or he does
1: teach playwriting. So he kind of helps the students get the professional training that they need in addition to the academic training. Right. So he works with a lot of the professors there, helping them just to experiment with the, with the kind of stories that they want to tell. And they, at the end of the semester they all have a showcase and they show everybody what they've been working on all semester. So he kind of helps facilitate that and guide them through their process. Right.
2: Okay, so so tell me, what, what is, is this story that you've done about, is about uh, the play that's coming up?
1: The story is mostly about Jure and his upbringing as an artist. Oh, okay. So the kind of themes that he focuses on in his writing, what motivates his writing, what influences him, and kind of where he sees the Atlanta theater scene going in the next couple of years. Oh, ah, okay,
2: cool. So, um, um, so this is sort of the the making of of a young artist, exactly, right?
1: exactly. Yeah.
2: Well, that's interesting. So, how I, it's like?
1: About how old is he? Is he Dre is in his late twenties. Oh, okay. So, so he's, he's very young. Yeah, but he's already making some major some major waves. Oh, that's great.
2: That's great because it's like you know the town always needs new young talent, and and you know I think we. We, we can nurture that, and, and it's nice to see, see young people coming in with new ideas and, and how that changes uh, our artistic landscape here in Atlanta.
1: And what I love about him as well is exactly what you said. He loves bringing other artists who are up and coming up with him. And his role gives, gives him the opportunity to bring along other playwrights, other directors, other stage managers, other costume designers, other lighting designers. So it's just a full-blown lane and, you know, arena for artists of all kind. Oh, that's
2: great. Yeah, I love to see that when, when people people help other people, especially Sometimes it's, it's difficult to get into uh, the arts here, um, or anywhere really, um, because it's, uh, it's a, hard, a hard business to be in. There's just not a whole lot of money, unfortunately, but uh, it's great to see someone come up and, and, and help out and pitch in and uh, bring other people along with them.
1: In relation to the story, just how he does it. I know you mentioned that it can be really difficult to kind of get your foot in the game, in the theater arena. He tells his story about how he did it, about developing different relationships with people who are already in the arts. The Alliance Theater was a big part of him growing and developing as an artist. They actually helped him with his resume and his application to get into Yale University. So the connections are super duper important if you're trying to. Right. Really make a stamp on the theater scene.
2: Right. So I guess that's why, that's must be why he came back to Atlanta.
1: He came back to Atlanta because a lot of the themes of his shows are related to Southern culture, specifically mm-hmm. Southern black culture. Right. So he could have gone to New York City or LA or even Chicago, but he felt like he could best build and elevate his stories talking about the people in the South while being in the South. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, and I guess, you know, Memphis and Atlanta probably share some commonalities both being southern cities exactly yeah well that's great well uh let's uh take a listen to naja's story
1: welcome access atlanta listeners my name is naja parker and i am a reporter at the atlanta journal constitution and today i have the pleasure of speaking with an up-and-coming playwright Jeray brian hoder how are you doing today i'm doing great how are you doing Naja? i'm doing fantastic your career is skyrocketing and i'm so excited to speak to you about everything that you've accomplished so far but let's just start at the beginning talk to me about your relationship with theater and how you got into writing
0: um i've always been a writer i was one of those like nerdy kids who even at summer camp like walked around with a clipboard but i came to theater at spelman so i took a theater appreciation class as a gen ed and i was an english major because i knew i was going to be the next tony morrison <laughs> But then I started taking classes, and I thought, wow, Toni Morrison did a lot more work than I feel like doing, Ooh. but the- <laughs> but theater felt like fun work. It didn't feel like work. It felt I'm writing the story for these actors to play in, and I can see these actors make cool choices, and I can see this director uh, mold my story in an exciting way that led, th- led me to stuff that I wouldn't have come to by myself versus novel writing, which is you in a room by yourself writing and writing and writing. And so theater was fun. Theater was this cool thing that uh, that I realized fed my social side.
1: That makes sense. So you mentioned Spelman, which means you went to Morehouse College. 2012. What was your intention when you enrolled into Morehouse?
0: When I got to Morehouse, I was pretty clear I wanted to be an English major and I was going to get the Martin Luther King education to be the black man who could do the highfalutin talking and all that stuff and then I got there and realized oh I'm not actually this kind of black guy (laughs) Uh, and that was okay at Morehouse that there are all kinds of black people in the AUC and so I kind of found myself there and got to play around with what kind of writing do I like or what kind of style do I have and uh, I think inched my way closer and closer to an aesthetic that I think I established by the time I was a senior.
1: Talk to me about writing your very first play.
0: My very first play, (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny. My very first play was this piece called A United Front. Um, I did this in the black box of Spelman Theater. Uh, starring Patrick Jackson, Althea Williams, and Christian, I think, played the priest. And so it was about this couple whose kid had been abused by a, a pastor that they trusted. And so they were inviting the pastor over to try and like have a conversation with him about how to proceed with their child um, because obviously this child trusted the pastor but it was clear that something inappropriate occurred and as all good black drama ends in a big fight (laughs) (laughs) which was funny and that was my very first 10 minute play that I got to see done and it was really cool my parents came down and they were really thrilled about it and people received it quite well and and I thought wow this is just thrown up in all black in a room what happens if I add some lights what happens if I do more with uh these ideas that I'm having or play around with these themes and by the end of my time at SoMa, I had arrived at like a, the full length kind of production version of my a 10-minute play and that one was called raindrops and it was about my family and my whole family came which was really cool and they <clears throat> sorry I'm now thinking how like nice of them to support this kid so much in this endeavor, which eventually turned into my career.
1: Nice. Now you mentioned like some pretty heavy things with your very first ten-minute play. You talked about <laughs> <Yeah>. abuse and <laughs> you said r- <laughs> <now>. <laughs> right, <laughs> but abuse is heavy. Um, mm-hmm. The black family can be a heavy topic, and religion can be a pretty heavy topic. How do you kind of wrap your mind around these type of things and? make them digestible for people who are going to view your work.
0: I think those are kind of the themes I'm I'm always constantly grappling with. And I throw in parenthood as well, or parenting. And this question of how do Black families negotiate parenting in the 21st century when religion as a construct is kind of collapsing in a lot of ways. Um, We're all spiritual. We all kind of understand that there's so many ways to access the divine if you want to. And I'm constantly thinking about um, the place that religion held for my parents and my parents' parents, and the place that religion holds for me, and how do we negotiate these big themes in our day-to-day lives, mm. which is what I think most of my plays focus on, people just trying to live life, and they have these barriers either socially or uh, intimately that are, are, are uh, preventing them from fully living, and it's about persevering and trying your best. I think that's what every play I write is actually about. And now that you say it, it did start at United Front with yeah. that couple <laughs> fighting the pastor. <laughs> <laughs>
1: now, we, I know that you continued your work at Yale mm-hmm. University. Um, you received your MFA there in playwriting. Talk to me about how that experience kind of helped continue to mold you as a playwright.
0: What was super was that I think the Atlanta community saw something special in my interest in writing and interest in theater. So both Emory, Spellman, Morehouse, and the Alliance Theater kind of came together to usher me into uh, being a young artist and they all helped me with my application. And I got into Yale. I also got into Brown. (laughs) Uh, and, um, And my time at Yale felt much closer to a lot of me's. A lot of people who were early in their careers and But knew that they were serious about the thing. They knew that they wanted their bread and butter to be the the art of theater. And so I'm with people from all over the world, truly all over the world. And we're all here for three years in this crazy place called Yale. And we're working really hard and we're learning new things. And we're all in the thick of it together. And so... It was almost like an intensive summer camp for three years that, you know, I, I worked really hard with people and I fought really hard with people and I got dr- really drunk with people and I, you know, and I made yeah. some really awful theater together and we made some really great theater together. But it's this cohort, this collective of people who decided to give up three years of their lives to do this crazy thing in this terrible place called New Haven, <laughs> Connecticut, <laughs> where it snows. Yeah. Way
1: different from Atlanta.
0: But you know about that because of Chicago, so exactly. you know how Dealing with the snow for the life.
1: It's it's definitely (laughs) a struggle. (laughs) What would you say is your most proudest piece that you created while you were at Yale?
0: Oh, hands down. um, I did this piece with my Morehouse brother, Leland Fowler, called 5013. You came to see that. I did. (laughs) (laughs) 5013 for sure. I am... my dad and I have had a like a pretty contentious relationship in a lot of ways recently and so that was at a time when I was really trying to figure out what does fatherhood mean and how do people impart these lessons and so I was getting a haircut one of my last haircuts before I lost all of it up here (laughs) and my barbers were casually talking about their experience behind bars and and First of all, it caught me off guard that so many of them had been to jail. But then I realized one in three black men. So oh, that I shouldn't be so surprised. Um, but also they shared the story about how you could tell how long any person had been there by how good they were at chess, hmm. because after lockdown and lights out, you had chess games, and but only one person could have a board, and so you would have to memorize. Your partner would have to memorize the board to be like, I oh, move the pawn to G four. And you'd have to know where the pieces are. Or you could use a mirror. They said you could also use a mirror anyway. It was fascinating. It was like incredibly fascinating to think about these men talking about being incarcerated, but learning such a skill that feels a little elitist almost. That like if you are a master chess player, you are a smart human. But if you're incarcerated, we learn, you know, we we have these other ideas Mm -hmm. about you. And so 5013 was this piece that explored, well, what if someone has to be a father behind bars? And I interviewed, um, a lot of black men from Memphis that I respect and a lot of, um, got lots of t- conversations about fatherhood, about generational understanding of manhood about brotherhood and and I put it into this one-man show that Leland killed it was so good and um the closing night a guy who had recently been incarcerated came up to me and said thank you so much for Mm -hmm. this piece and I think that 5013 has been my proudest thing that I've created uh as a student I wish it had a life beyond but I don't I don't think so. Okay, (laughs) Leland's popping now.
1: Now the title was very specific. Can you explain? Uh, Yeah, the title.
0: It's a bad title. Fifty thirteen. So it's a bad title because I have to explain it. No, you're just like, what does that mean? Um, So fifty thirteen is a ratio that um, black men represent fifty percent of the prison population, the U.S. prison population, but only thirteen percent of the U.S. population. That's crazy. And so we're. Are we, are we really committing that many more crimes than any other population demographic? And the answer is absolutely not. We're just being incarcerated at higher rates. Mm-hmm. And so the notion that 50% of the prison population may, is made up of people who look like me, but I walk around my daily life and there's actually only 13% of the US population even in the country, and how many of those people are in jail? You know, like it feels like um, you know this kind of intentional removal. Um, or at least calculator removal okay. and so that's what the title is about and the whole thought was you're you're supposed to ask me so i could start this conversation but then my thought is or i should figure out a better title <laughs> <laughs>
1: well i don't mind the explanation you know it helps me understand the piece on the on a deeper level even though i know you're being hard on yourself <laughs> So upon graduation, in my mind, there are, you have options in terms of where you want to live and start your career as a playwright. I think New York, I think, you know, LA, I think even Chicago. Right. Why did you intentionally decide to come back to Atlanta?
0: I missed it. Hmm. I missed Atlanta a lot. I, f- I visited Atlanta a couple of times during my time at Yale. And every time I, I, I was driving for most of those trips and I could feel the weight of 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 yankee living i guess come off of my shoulders and the comfort and warmth and expanse of the south and i realize that part of that is i'm a southern writer so so the south actually really feeds me and atlanta is just the best city in the south i think in a lot of ways <laughs> So, And I've talked to people like Katori Hall, who's a playwright. I've talked to other peers who have found ways to live not in these hubs like New York and LA and Chicago, but still um, be a part of the conversation. So for me, having... Um, Hartford Jackson right there I can fly into New York whenever I need to but also I can like live and breathe in a space that is feeding me artistically in a lot of different ways and there are people of color and I can have a house and not some box on the 12th floor of some place in Harlem you know this yeah. question that that I can live the life that I want to live from here uh, and and I also think it makes me unique too because I'm not some slave to the system. And my writing even sounds different because I'm coming into contact with people who don't sound like me in a more kind of um, tangible way than in New York, where you're always talking to people who don't sound like you, but that's only on the subway. Mm -hmm. Once you get into your building, once you get into wherever you go, you're back in some bubble. And I don't think that that's necessarily true for Atlanta, that there's so many ways that you can meet people who aren't like you. Um, and have intimate conversations that for me as a writer, that's what I'm always doing is like listening to conversations and trying to write them and put them on the page authentically.
1: Yeah. I'm really glad that you did decide to come back to Atlanta. You had an excellent, excellent premiere at the Alliance Theater. And you, a couple of minutes ago before we Mm -hmm, started, you showed me your published play, Too Heavy for Your Pocket. Talk to me about that experience and how that just continued to shape you.
0: It's I mean continue and continue. It's it's the gift that it keeps giving. So I'm a really um, experimental writer in a lot of ways that I really, really enjoy stories that break form or don't feel like they just sit around the kitchen sink talking about what daddy did. You know I'm really interested in more. Um, experimental things like 5013, for example, was a one man show that took place in a prison. And so Leland is literally behind bars talking to the audience. That's the form. There's no kitchen, there's no other character to talk to, you know, there's a, there's something a little inventive or imaginative. Um, but when I got to the, time, the end of my time at Yale, I really wanted to write something that my grandmother could understand. Right. <laughs> I was tired of my family coming to plays saying, Oh, I like that, baby. What was it about? <laughs> and the amount of times they did it was like, Really, every single play, wow. I like that so much. What was it about? Or my dad's favorite was like, I got that one, Jerrett. <laughs> like
1: my dad was, he said, Oh, I got that one. <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so too heavy for your pocket was my attempt of writing something that my grandmother could get okay and so i think i took up the task to say well what let me tell my grandmother's story and um in more ways than one so it's this piece about a freedom writer who has just gotten a scholarship to fisk in the summer of 1961 so he turns down that scholarship in order to join the protests that are occur- occurring all over the um Country that all these people from these big cities are integrating the Greyhound buses, the inter- the interstate buses, which is legal at the time, but obviously people were being killed for doing it. And so it's about a freedom rider who risked his education and his life, and the people who choose not to. Because mm-hmm. my grandmother was among the people who chose not to. She didn't march and she <laughs> didn't do you no know, you know she was at the house mm-hmm. and she was at the house raising my mother. So I don't think that she did not have a sacrifice. I think her sacrifice looks really different than what we try to impose on our understanding of the 60s and the civil rights movement. That actually there were some real people making some real sacrifices and not all of them were um, kings and um, people who were well educated and people who had the time to march or the people who were socially pressured enough into boycotting. But some of them just said, no, I'm living is hard. And I'm going to really try hard to live the best life. And it's a piece about you know the different kinds of sacrifices that occurred in 1961, and I think in some way today, right? Um, you know, it, do you want some Starbucks? Mm-hmm. You know, you know this question of like, what am I going to boycott? How am yeah. I going to boycott? Do I have time to do this march, the women's march? This, you know, All like right. how am I negotiating? living day to day i mean and then this goes all the way back to united front these are things i'm always thinking about is how do you keep living Mm -hmm. anyway two a for your pocket won this competition called the candida prize at the alliance theater which is a really rare opportunity that playwrights fresh out of grad school usually spend three four years hustling Mm -hmm. before anything pops off for them and this particular um uh prize is so that you get a production as soon as you graduate which is unheard of. And what's even more unheard of is that there was a theater in New York called The Roundabout that also really liked it. So my first year out of grad school, I had a production in Atlanta that I then transferred to New York and then won this prize called The Lawrence Hatcher, which is an incredible gift. And I was able to buy a house, wow. which is really, really cool. And again, I grew up knowing I was going to be a starving artist mm-hmm. that, you know, when I told my mom I want to be Tony Morrison when I grew up, she said, don't you want to be a lawyer and Toni Morrison? <laughs> <laughs> she kept trying to steer yeah. me towards something that wouldn't in me in the poor house but I loved writing and I was like I'll be poor for this I I this will sustain me somehow I just knew that and it's kind of cool that uh, my very first project out of school did lead to this kind of semblance of sustainability yeah I still need to sweep but (laughs) (laughs) but it's mine and it's kind of nice to say no my writing I can point to this this published thing and say this play is why I'm able to do the next thing, yeah. which is cool and, and, and is a real gift for, for many writers that it's not it's not a given that any given project is actually going to be profitable. In fact, most times people just want a little bit of exposure or just a little bit of a hint that they're going in the right direction. So I, I, I'm very, very happy about Too Heavy, which is now going to LA, Chicago, Memphis, Houston, Jersey. And there's a couple other places that Ooh. I'm excited about. But those are the places that for sure are doing Too Heavy for Your Pocket, That's which is incredible. really cool. It's really cool that there are five theaters that are going to be doing this without me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and at age 27. Something like that. Yeah, yeah something, like <laughs> that. something like that. <laughs> but not only are you writing these amazing plays that are, that are going to all the cities across the, the United States, but you're also teaching kids how to do this at Emory. Talk to me about what you do at that university.
0: I am the playwriting fellow at Emory. So they have this kind of thing so that professional writers are constantly in contact with their students. They're one of the rare programs in the country that have a major in playwriting so that I could actually get an undergraduate degree in writing plays at Emory. And there are a lot of kids who do. And so I am the writer-in-residence. I don't have a heavy course load, but my job is to be around the students and make sure that they are being taught things at a professional practicing standard versus just an academic standard. It's a research-focused school, so it's very research-heavy and very academic. But I kind of see my job there is... Um, to get people into the practice of any given thing. So, um, a lot of my work is devised, which means from scratch mm-hmm. that it's just me and the actors and the directors and designer, we like make something up. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And, um, and so, I taught this devising course, and we did different modes of creating new works without a playwright or with a playwright or just actor driven or um, based upon any given theme. And their final is actually based on Janelle Monet's. Um, three latest videos and space exploration, and so they are doing the piece. I just saw their their rough draft last night on space exploration, and uh, and and I think what they mainly got from Janelle Monet is body exploration and like how how do I like learn about my body in a world that is constantly shutting it down or um, fetishizing it or. Whatever. And so their piece is this stunning, fabulous piece about these people exploring space and exploring their bodies and owning both spaces um, from a really socially conscious way. I'm so proud of those kids. That
1: was really, really interesting.
0: (laughs) And they made it up by themselves, because that's the class. And I feel like any other kind of class would be like, oh, this is how you devise. And here's a quiz on this mode of devising, versus no part of what it is, is I'm in the field now. I have access to practices that are going on currently. And here is my connection between the two of them. And if, you know, some of those kids are lucky enough, they'll get a recommendation yeah. or they'll whatever. And if they decide to pursue it, they now have someone in the field who they, who can vouch for them. Yeah. Which, which for me feels like a real gift because that's not necessarily true of my education that I had to create a lot of avenues for myself, and this, and for me, I see myself as almost giving back. I'm coming back, and I taught a class at Spelman uh, this semester also, that this way that I can be in these spaces that meant so much to me as a kid. Yeah.
1: So you've done so much in your career thus far, but if you had to pick your biggest accomplishment, what would it be?
0: Thus far, my biggest accomplishment? I'm really proud of what I did at Spellman. I'm really proud of uh, the Playwright's workshop and the Unbound Festival, which was a, a festival f- for the most part I invented while at Spellman with the help of you and some other really cool friends. Uh, but it f- but what why I'm most proud about that is I think it has been the thing that has given more people more opportunities. That has really galvanized some folks in ways that I don't think they would have been galvanized without that. Um, One of my good friends, Rachel Debose, like applied to grad school with her play that she did for Unbound and she got into Northwestern. And so now she is like a working playwright in Chicago. Of course, I'm not taking responsibility for that, but this opportunity leading to that discovery for me feels great. Or Brittany Horton's first time on stage being um, one of those endeavors and, um, having uh (laughs) like there's just so many people who touched it and were touched by it at really pivotal points in their development that i feel really proud of all the work that went into making unbound happen
1: yeah
0: that was a long time ago though i gotta have a better one don't i No,
1: but if that's what it means to you i think that's really special yeah it meant a lot and then then my last question for you as an artist and writing all these amazing plays and working with all these other amazing artists what has it taught you about yourself that you may not have known before
0: what has worked you you know i'm really simple i'm really simple um i I'm an ambitious person, but I am also a person who is just fine not getting the applause if I know that I put the work to make sure someone else is shining. So, for example, um, Ebony Flowers um, um, debuted in Too Heavy for Your Pocket in Atlanta, and she knocked it out of the water. It was stunning. But that was her First and biggest gig in a very long time that she had kind of been doing some cool little stuff in Harlem here and there, but not any kind of main stage look at me, let me stretch my muscles. She then went on to audition for and get the same role in New York, and she impressed the folks in New York so much. And my um, the dean of Yale School of Drama came to see Too Heavy for Your Pocket, and then hired her for a co-pro of uh, Father Comes Home for the War in at Yale, mm. which is going to also be done in California. And so, this uh, for me, that is what I've learned about myself. That that gets me really excited. The notion that me writing plays can give people opportunity—that that's a way that I can give gifts. And yes it's cool that I that I wrote the play or whatever and I had this published thing but what's even cooler is that when I write anything but other people get to work. I think that's why we love Tyler Perry. I think that's why we're excited about OWN. I think that we're, that's why we're excited about Issa like I think that there are, that there there are so many people doing it but it's exciting every time because there aren't enough people doing it. Mm. So to know that no 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 I get to be one of those people who are the reason why people of color are designing on New York stages or the reason why an actor who's been doing cool stuff in Harlem is now getting to explore the country with her art because she got this opportunity that people got to see what she already had. It's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing.
1: Thank you, Dre. I appreciate it. But you. I'm real simple, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I'm like, listen, I'm real simple. Like that's,
0: that's all it really takes, yeah. that that the, whole, the, the shaking hands and kissing babies at the end of any given show really freaks me out and I'll do it because I have to. But moreover, I'm not the person who needs to stay in the spotlight. In fact, and I thought I was. I think I wanted to be Tony Morris and I wanted in this, to be in that spotlight. But my most exciting moments have been watching my grandmother watch the play, or the man coming to, up to me after Fifty Thirteen, or Ebony's career skyrocketing after this. You know, this feels like those are the things that feel like, yeah, that's really cool, Jarett.
1: Thank you for your <laughs> time, <Jure>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Let's take a look at the events happening in and around Atlanta over the next 10 days. Top Dog Entertainment is bringing the championship tour to Solaris Amphitheater at Lakewood on May 25th. It's your chance to see a Pulitzer Prize winner on stage. Kendrick Lamar has been nominated for the Album of the Year Grammy for each of the last three albums and lost each time. Of course, he still has a shelf full of Grammys with 12 to his name. His latest album, Damn, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for music making Lamar the first non-jazz or classical artist to win the award. Also performing is Siza, who was the most nominated female artist at this year's Grammy Awards. Sadly, she left empty-handed despite all the acclaim she got for her debut album, Control. And that's just the two at the top of the bill. There are many more, so check out the championship tour at Solaris Amphitheater at Lakewood, beginning at 7.30 p.m. on Friday, May 25th. Those tickets are $60 to $200, and you can find those at LiveNation.com. One of country's biggest stars is headed to Mercedes-Benz Stadium on Saturday, May 26. Kenny Chesney's trip around the sun tour will bring him to Atlanta's massive new venue for the first time, and it's sure to be a spectacle. Chesney is a born entertainer, able to project his charisma even to the cheapest of seats in stadiums like Mercedes-Benz. There's a good reason he's been named Entertainer of the Year four times by both the Academy of Country Music and the Country Music Association. And his tours are always among the highest-grossing shows of the year. The Knoxville, Tennessee native is touring following the release of a live album called Live in No Shoes Nation. It was his last release via Sony, as it was recently announced that he signed a new deal with Warner Brothers Nashville. Tickets for Kenny Chesney at Mercedes-Benz Stadium are $35 to $175, and they're available at Ticketmaster.com or via mercedes Spend a day or two at Decatur's Inviting Courthouse Square as the annual Decatur Arts Festival fills downtown on May 25th through May 27th. The market brings in more than 150 artists ready to display their creations during Memorial Day weekend. As visitors walk from vendor to vendor, they'll also enjoy live musical acts, improvisational and stand-up comedy, and dance performances. Things get underway with the Art Walk from 5 to 10 p.m. Friday, May 25th. Where visitors spend the evening strolling around town to see exhibits at various shops and galleries and enjoy complimentary snacks and drinks. Beer will also be on sale at East Court Square and there are many really fantastic restaurants in the area too. The main part of the festival happens 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Saturday, May 26th and 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, May 27th. It's all free and takes place in the center of downtown Decatur on the Courthouse Square. Get all the details at DecaturArtsFestival.com It's a battle of wills at the Bristol Place Senior Living Facility in Aurora Theatre's production of Ripcord, a comedy-drama by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright David lindsay Aubert. Abby won't pay for a private room, but she's managed to remain alone through sheer spite. Then she gets a fiercely cheerful new roommate who wants to stay. A bed is made which escalates into increasingly dirty tricks and torments. It's been described as the odd couple meets the Golden Girls. Ripcord is the current production at Lawrenceville's Aurora Theater, and it continues through June 3rd. The tickets are $20 to $55, and you'll find those at auroratheater.com. For more things to do around Metro Atlanta, head to accessatlanta.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith, podcast edited by Ryan Horn, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.
0: AJC Access Atlanta is sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, built
1: to beat cancer.